The late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to another edition of Book Off. I'm Joe Haddo and if you listen to our very first podcast, you'll know that our aim here is to entertain you as well as introduce you to some new books and authors that you may want to explore. I'm joined today by two brilliant authors who have sold millions of books worldwide and whose novels have been turned into major Hollywood films. Notably, we need to talk about Kevin and the girl with the pearl earring, Lionel Shriver, Tracy Chevalier. Welcome to Book Off. Thank you for joining me. Pleasure. Good to be here. And I have to say, it's pretty strange being with Lionel in the same room doing an interview together because we know each other. You know, we're friends anyway. So it doesn't happen very often that I get to talk with a friend in an interview. Yeah, this is going to be a little different. It's funny. It makes me feel slightly more self-conscious. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. I was going to say in a good way. Surely yeah. this is a good thing. I don't know now. whether it's possible to be self-conscious <laughs> in a good way. <laughs> I'm, I'm very glad I've sort of brought you two together because you've already been out and had a little wander around the, the Regent's Park. And Indeed. Caught up. And, you yep. Know. yep. We've caught up. We're all caught up. I want to know, though, is is it going to be a friendly rivalry when we get to the end and we have to... I have to choose one or other of the books that you've brought to talk about today. I warned you ahead of time. We're going to rip each other's throats <laughs> off. <laughs> no, I've actually already gamed it because I chose a book that I know I've told Lionel about before, and I know that she wants to read it. That's no, true. There you go. Oh, that's I'm clever really not... <laughs> gameplay from you. <laughs> I should be in Game of Thrones. I'm so one step ahead. Eh? Yeah, I'm likely to throw this contest. <laughs> but we're not going to get to that straight away. Okay, we're going to leave that sort of sat at the side. I, I was actually going to ask you, Lionel, if you had cycled here, but I'm assuming that you have because of the outfit that you're wearing. Uh, well, I dress badly on principle anyway, but yes, I did take the bike. <laughs> Are you still clocking your miles per week? Do you have targets per week that you do? No, I don't. Because it's, I remember the last time we, we were talking about it specifically, and this was the one, that was the one time you said, oh, I cycle everywhere, a time that I well, take Well, I do, myself. but unfortunately, so does everyone else cycle around London now. In fact, one of the problems uh, is that there, there are a lot of these guys in Lycra who are using apps to measure their progress and how long it takes them and how many seconds they've taken off the journey today. It makes them extremely dangerous because they're not thinking about anything but their app. So they're trying to beat themselves rather than just cycling. Yes, that generally also includes beating me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's why. You see, that's that's why you're not impressed. Okay, well, let's park that and move on to just talking about books and 
you guys and the writing and how it all started out because obviously you're both American but you spend a lot of your time here in fact Tracy you live here now don't you yes I'm yeah, here full time I've been here over 30 years so yeah this is home to you now then the UK I guess yeah people ask me if I feel American or British and I um, my response tends to be I feel like a Londoner that's what I am now more than anything else just because I've been here longer than I've lived anywhere else and and uh London is a has a baggier um, definition, so I I can fit in it more easily. And it is a bubble in itself, isn't it, London? Well, I would say that I fit into I fit myself into a very specific category, which you do belong into, and that is I feel like an American who has lived for almost thirty years in the UK, and it's a particular little group of people, several of whom are my friends. And it's very specific. It's not the same thing as just native Brits, and it's certainly not the same thing as just people back in the states. It's a it's a narrow band of experience, and we we find we always find that we have certain things in common, and I like them very much. And you know what? We have this certain battle weariness. Um, it, it reminds me sometimes when I meet Americans who have been here a long time. It reminds me of meeting old hippies who have, you know, been through Haight-Ashbury and are kind of, they're, they got that weathered skin of being outdoors a lot. And, and uh, there's there's just something about Americans here, being here a long time, you, um, you have to uh, find a place. And it's not always an easy find. I don't know if you've had that experience. Well, I think a lot of it is resigning yourself that you're going to be regarded as an American here regardless of how long you stay here. So you never earn yourself out of that category. And the key is to stop trying. In, yeah. in fact, to stop trying to assimilate. And it's the Americans who try too hard to assimilate that have the hardest time. Mm-hmm. Do you remember when Madonna moved here because she was married oh, she got to all Guy Ritchie? And she, uh, she, well, she took on a very bizarre accent of this sort of half not American anymore. But it's like she's talking with marbles in her mouth. And I thought... And it happened way too fast. It happened really fast. But I remember doing that when I first lived here, that I, I just sort of garbled things a bit. And, and after a while, I realized that's not me. You know, it, it doesn't matter matter how long I live here, I'm always going to have had that growing up experience mm. in the States, and that's what really is my foundation. Also, there's an implicit expression of the desire to please, the desire to fit in by changing your accent. And it doesn't go down well, even <laughs> with the locals. It doesn't, And it certainly doesn't go down well with other Americans. If you go back to the States with a British accent... Mm. People detest you. And the the irony being, of course, that if a real Brit goes to the States, then they are adored the first time they open their mouth <laughs> yeah. for their accent. But it has to be the real thing. Right. My son once, uh, when he was 10, was at a summer camp in the States. And the older guys at the camp said, because my son sounds like Harry Potter. He has a very English accent. And they all said... Jacob, that accent is a babe lure. <laughs> Sadly, he wasn't able to put it into effect at age ten. So, <laughs> oh dear, does he know? Does he know though the secret that he's got? The uh, does he know that he's he, got that power? I, he hasn't been back to summer camp, um, and so and he's eighteen now, so he might have to go on a little road trip in the states and see how it works out for him. <laughs> <laughs> Did your 
writing journeys then, your, your publishing journeys start in America or over here? They started here. I moved here right after college and uh, I worked in publishing for a while and sort of wrote on the side at night. And then I then I stopped and did an MA in creative writing and that was when I um, got a book deal and and that was after. So it was, I, I was well established here before I um, I ended up getting published. Mm. And uh, so it, it sort of, and in fact, there's a slight tension between my UK publisher and my US publisher who are different and the two of them kind of wanting to be um, my primary publisher. And uh, because when I uh, when I finish a book, I don't know about you, Lionel, but when I finish a book I and I press send, it goes to two ed- ed- editors, one in the US and one in the UK. So they see it at the same time. And as far as I'm concerned, they're equal. But I'm not sure they always consider themselves equal. Is that the same for you, Lionel? Well, I did not uh, write my first book in Britain. I think you came here younger than I did. Um, so... I published my first two um, before I came to Britain. I came to the UK via Belfast mm. because I was setting my third novel there and came uh, intending to spend about nine months and stayed for 12 years. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a lovely place. <laughs> well, you know what it is. It is a lovely place deep That's down That's amazing. Inside. What years were you there? Um, 87 to 99. And uh, politically, that was a fascinating period to be there. So I was, um, I had a Northern Irish boyfriend who lived in London, but we went to Belfast several times in 1987 and 88. Isn't that wild? We We could have been been in the same pub. That's so wild. Yeah. (laughs) Because you guys didn't actually meet till, well, you met here and maybe 10 Twelve years ago, was it something? Yeah, eleven years 11 ago. Years we just ago. established. It. Yeah, we met at a um, at an Orange Prize party. Lionel had had uh, won it the year before, and uh, and I recognized her in the crowd, and I thought I'm going to go and be nice and fangirl her because I really want to meet her. You were very nice. You were very generous, and uh, it turns out that that wasn't a, a one off. That Aww. is your nature. Oh well, I, you know those parties can be a little, um, a little overwhelming because mm. it's a lot of people crammed into a room, and if you don't, everybody seems to be animatedly talking. You know how when you're at a party and everybody seems to have somebody to talk to except you, and you don't really know mm. anybody. And I just had that awkward feeling. And when I saw Lionel, I thought, well, I don't know her, but I know she's American and mm-hmm. she's a writer, so mm-hmm. maybe we have some common ground. And and it would be nice to meet her. And that was the beginning of a friendship. Is yeah. Great. Yeah. Yeah. I've always been grateful for that, that you made that effort because I'm crap at parties and I really need people to come up to me. You, right? won't, you won't make the first move then as such. There's something the about the format of the party that drives me back to about the age of 13 and um, something in me immediately wants to grab a book and go off in a corner and ignore everyone in, in my insecure fashion. Um <laughs> I, I, I've never understood how to negotiate the party. Mm. Are you better on your own or with someone by your side? So if you go with someone, I'm better with know. somebody. Yeah. Um, I, I think I need a, a safe space. <laughs> <laughs> a book corner is all we need right. in a party yeah. room. Can I just go back to this? Um, I hadn't really thought it through being an author with 
two publishers or you know or certainly two editors different sides of the pond yeah and actually finishing a manuscript and sending it to those people and just getting their thoughts from either side I hadn't really thought about that process so are you getting from your editors this is what we think the American audience would like and this is what the UK would like or are you just getting oh this is what we like and this is what we think you maybe want to change or something. You know, you know I think it's it's unusual to have two editors. I think most writers kind of go with one or another. But I, I actually like having two different perspectives. It, uh, often one editor will be better at one thing and one at another. One might Because I write historical novels, one might be particularly good at history, one might be particularly good at storytelling. And luckily, knock on wood, I've never had a situation. I've had various editors come and go because they all seem to move on or retire or whatever. So there's there's been a lot of different pairings. But um, they've never disagreed so much that their notes didn't make sense. What they usually do is they each read it and they they, they come up with notes and they talk to each other. And then they combine their notes and give them to me. So I don't know who said what, right. although I can often figure it out. But <laughs> but I um, so far that's been fine. And, you know, one might feel a little more strongly about one thing or emphasize something. But um, but for the most part, it's been a pretty happy, uh, happy process, surprisingly, because it could be awful. But a good editor, boy, they can make a book so much better. They can really, um, you know, when you write a book, and you press send, if nobody's read it yet, you don't know if it works or not until somebody says to you, yeah, that works, or no, that that, that works, but I think it'd work even better if you did this. And it's, it's having that person who has that perspective who says, you know, what if you try doing this, or this chapter is a little long, and they say, and they say that, and you go, of course it's too long. Well, of course I didn't do that. It's uh, The best editing is when they they affirm something that you subconsciously kind of sense, but you just haven't been able to, to, to vocalize it, and they do that for you. Who are the first people on your email list when you finish a novel, Lionel? Is there a one person or a few people that get that first email? Well, I have to say that I, I send it to my husband. He's the number one, yeah. And he's also one of my least critical readers, if I'm going to be honest with myself. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a soft-touch audience. That's but, hilarious because my husband, I only let him see it after it's been edited because I, I don't want him um, – I care more about what he thinks than anyone else. And so I want him to see it when it's at its best. And I would never get him to read it for critical purposes. That would just be a disaster for a relationship you don't want. It's like you should never teach your partner how to drive. Oh, no. You know, it just doesn't work. Um, so I, I never get him – I mean, does your husband – does Jeff – does Jeff uh, ever give you – notes or advice or does he say that's a little long or this character's only on one thing no oh. cars okay <laughs> that's pretty funny Jeff because is really big on cars and he has strong feelings about what cars my characters drive <laughs> but you don't even own a car no i don't so i don't know what i'm talking about <laughs> Yeah, but so, he doesn't and, and own a car. Example, he's, he'll be very um. Does criti- he own a he'll car? be very critical if I've used a make of car in Britain, say that's not made in Britain. It's only in the U.S. He knows oh, where cars right. are made, which right. and what Important. what years they were important. made, mm-hmm. and um, he's highly attuned to what kind of personality would go with which car. And I just completely defer to his judgment on this point. But hang on a minute. Um, in Big in Big Brother, you wrote about a jazz drummer. 
Yes. And Jeff is a jazz drummer. So did he not have anything well, to say about, about that? Well, about a jazz, um, a jazz pianist. Oh, sorry. I've forgotten. Okay. Did he have anything to say um, about the jazz element? And yes, of, of course he did. <laughs> well, He's does... very proprietary about anything to do with jazz. Doesn't he test you over dinner sometimes, Lionel? Yes, he does. Fact, does he, he, what does he put on the record player? He record ruins <laughs> dinner. <laughs> and are you getting any better at being able to tell who's playing the sax or the... I have Double good bass. nights and bad nights. Okay. I had a really good night the other night. Mm-hmm. I was so... I even impressed Jeff. Do you ever turn the tables and read a passage from a book and say, guess who's what author this is? <laughs> <laughs> I have observed that I do not do that to him at dinner. Um, but I haven't actually tortured him with it, no. After all, I'm the cook, so I'm not going to ruin my own. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Dinner. Let's talk about research because Tracy, the last time we talked, to you were you were talking about listening to music on a road trip. Yeah. And that road trip was about you know learning research for your novel for right. Last Runaway I think it was that we were talking about and this is something you love this is this is part of the whole process for you the research part of yeah of your novels so um just talk us through where that ca- your sort of love of research and history came from well um I never set out to be a historical novelist it just kind of evolved that way um my very first novel was called The Virgin Blue and it was actually ended up being half contemporary half historical it was going to be completely contemporary about an american woman who moves to france and starts looking into her french family uh history and she uncovers this story of french huguenots in the 16th century and i was just going to sprinkle a little bit of huguenot stuff in it and um uh but it would be mostly this contemporary story and I found when I started writing the historical stuff that it was much harder to write and it it completely stripped away my character, Tracy, and my voice. And I discovered I really liked that, that I didn't want to always be sounding like myself. And and, uh, I noticed... That's the very opposite of what most people are looking for because most, most writers are obsessed with getting their voice. Maybe, maybe I I know it. Maybe it is a little odd, but I I got but really you find irritated. Your voice through other 
people yeah, through yeah, other I material. So. By losing your voice, you find it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, it's kind uh, of ventriloquism. It's kind of, um, well, what was odd was when The Virgin Blue was published, people kept saying to me, oh, are you um, Ella, the main character? Uh, it sounds just like you, and, you know, you have French background, too. And I said, don't, you know, do I have, am I not allowed to have some imagination here? No, I'm not her. But, you know, looking back on it, I can see that it does, there is a similarity. Um, but nobody asked me if I was the main character in the historical part, Isabel. Nobody said, that's obviously autobiographical. So um, then when I wrote Girl of the Pearl Earring, that was the next novel. Again, nobody asked me if I was her, and nobody has since. They, they, I've, I've really effectively stepped back from my material. Mm. So um, that was what got me into writing about history and um, and in order to write it, you have to research it a lot. And I found the research process really um, brought up ideas that I wouldn't have had myself. Uh, so even, you know, big things and little things. Like the the last couple novels uh, ago, I wrote um, At the Edge of the Orchard, which is set in Ohio and California in the 19th century. And there's a scene in um, in a grove of sequoias in California in the 1850s. And uh, they've just been discovered for the first time by white people. And uh, some guys uh, claim the property, and they're going to make it into a tourist attraction. So the first thing they do is they cut down one of the hundred trees so that they can see how big the stump is. They make it into a dance floor. And the 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 big, long log of the trunk of the tree, they build a bowling alley on it. Now, I could never in a million years have come up with that detail on my own. But when I did the research, I read that and I thought, that is just too weird. I've got to put that in the book. So it's little things like that that really um, perk up the story and make and make it easy for me. I don't have to make it all up. Mm. And, you know, I think, though, that it's in a way a misnomer to say you just have uh, only historical novelists do research and contemporary novelists don't. We've got a contemporary novelist here. We can ask you. You've had to do a lot of research. <laughs> so for um, so much for that, which is all about the health industry in the, st in the States, you had to do tons of research. And for the mandibles, you must have done loads and loads of research about financial crashes and what's going to happen and yeah, what I could did. happen. And it was great fun. You know, I don't, I don't consider it uh, onerous. It's an opportunity to find out something new. It's a, it's a form of uh, self-education. And I'm much more interested in reading nonfiction if it's to a purpose. And I have a, a project. Yeah. It gives me a mm. reason to need this information rather than it just being abstractly interesting or, you know, it's it's part of the world, so maybe I should know something about it. I am exactly the same way. Nonfiction, I don't read for fun. Exactly. I read novels mm. for fun and entertainment, but nonfiction, if I'm reading it for, to, to write a book, oh, yeah, I can't get enough of it. And it takes you longer to read nonfiction, doesn't it? Than yes. Fiction? Does it take you longer? Yes, because I, uh, it doesn't pull me along in quite yeah. the same way. Though I found that when I was reading these uh, apocalyptic economics <laughs> books... Um, <laughs> As that, you do. ...that they had a certain momentum, you know. Um, I, I did find the material absolutely fascinating in that it was talking about the, the capacity for catastrophe. Uh, it... it it fed beautifully into the vision for my fictional um, near future. Mm. So um, I, 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 I think of that period very fondly. In fact, I, I think 
back on the period of research previous to starting the book, uh, finally, in, in relation to just about all my books, that 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 is a very mm-hmm. precious period of time, and um, and it was a kind of wallowing, uh, and and it was also, of course, preparation for getting ready to do do the do the book. But I love immersing myself in a new field. Mm. You know, one of the things that made me realize how much I love research is when I didn't have to do it. So my most recent novel I've just had out uh, is called New Boy, and it's a retelling of Othello. And I've set it on a school playground in the States in 1974, and they're all 11 years old, and that's when I was 11 years old. And uh, when I started the book, I uh, I went to the British Library and got a couple of critical studies of Othello out. I'd, re- I'd reread the play, and then I read these critical studies. And after two days, I was done, and I thought, right, what else should I order for my research? And I realized there was nothing. I just had to write it. And it was so disorienting not having the, those months of of wallowing of, of yeah. where and that's when the the characters develop in your head and ideas for parts of the plot and 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 settings and stuff and and, and with uh, new boy I just had to kind of start and and remember things rather mm. than actually research them I mean in some ways it was a lot easier but on the other hand it doesn't give you that period of time where you're trying things out in your head and it and without the research it doesn't provide you some of the content I mean there are portions of my novels that I mean, while they're not cut and paste, but the 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 information that I'm delivering along with the story is provided from elsewhere, the research and the you know the rest of the world, and it helps fill in my project. Is there a subject that you would happily read about, even though you weren't going to write about it? Is there is there something that you'd be interested enough in that you'd go and search out that sort of that research, that nonfiction stuff? You know, that question reminds me of when people ask me, what hobbies do you have? And I I sort of go, (laughs) uh, you know, I just can't divide my life into work and play. I'm incredibly lucky that way. I realize that, you know, not everybody gets to have that. But I just don't um, – I'm never on and I'm never off. Mm -hmm. It's always one thing. And so – reading books is uh, I'm not kind of going and this is I'm going to do this and then I'm going to look for a nonfiction book that's going to be good for me to read instead it's just like what have I got what books have I got around what do I feel like reading now and it doesn't divide into work and play like that Mm. I just wondered I keep up with some subjects that I have already written about without necessarily planning to write about it again I still read anything to do with demography that I trip over, and uh, that goes back to my fourth novel. So that was quite some time ago. But it's an ongoing fascination and continues to feed into other issues that I'm also interested in. So it has an, an effect on the environment, food supply, water. Water is one of my obsessions. Lack of water, I guess. So... Next novel. So I think that's what you should write about. And but there are other things that once I write about them, I I finished. Yeah. You know, I I was really into snooker for writing the <laughs> post birthday world. Yeah. And I watched lots of snooker. I went to uh, snooker tournaments. I read snooker biographies, and once the manuscript was done, I stopped cold. I have not watched a complete snooker match 
since finishing that novel. Thank God for that, eh? (laughs) Well, that's what some people think. But no, it is a wonderful sport. It's very subtle. It's, um, uh, it's... it's it, you, you have to be incredibly skillful. To Did you play ever it try well. playing it while you were writing? Was that no. part of your research? You, didn't you know, go to funnily enough, hall? I'm not. I, I'm purely a fan. In fact, that was one of the nice things about my relationship to it, so that I didn't. I, I wasn't competing with anyone. It, it it interested me as as. I was going to say spectacle. It's almost like a dance. It's it's very elegant, and I I find it soothing. And I'm really admiring of the fine motor skills involved in playing it well. Maybe that's why they always show it late night, like when people are sort of lulled off to sleep anyway. (laughs) It's the only time I've ever seen it on telly. I've whiled away quite a few good hours just sitting in a chair watching snooker in the afternoon. I love the sound of it. Yeah, it's wonderful. The little click, click. Oh, man, but have you ever tried to play it, Joe? Because it is... Oh, I'm hellishly difficult. Ah. I went with it. There's a friend I used to go play pool with, and um, I was really terrible at pool too. But he one time took me to a snooker hall, and mm. it was just—it's so. Well, hard. the table's longer. Yeah, way. And the pockets longer. are smaller, right? So it's every, everything. Yeah. About Americans it is think that it's just the same as pool, which I have played, and I wasn't atrocious at pool, but it's nothing like it. Mm. I mean, it's so much harder. Better to be a spectator, or not. Now, maybe you watch so much snooker, you felt the. Didn't need to watch. Well, I will say that by contrast, I did a fair bit of research on professional tennis for my sixth novel, Double Fault. And I play tennis, not especially well, but with great brio and enthusiasm. (laughs) And um, don't you play it without scoring? Yes. I, I have a hard time imagining that. Yeah, wow. I've heard. How I've t- never played because I'm pretty da- bad at it, and also I really want to have the it's scores. More, we have more fun that way. You just do you just like go on and on until you're tired, and so you never do you keep track of how much we don't keep score, but we do play points. Okay, so you just go one, two, three. I've won. We so don't. There, count. Is there a winner? You don't. Count. Is there a winner at the end? And there is often a feeling of who did a better job. <laughs> 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 I love it. I mean, you know when you just lost 20 points in a row. Right. Yeah, you may sure. not be sure whether it's 21 or 19. <laughs> but you've got the, you've got the gist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, let's, can we talk about Double Fault, actually? Because it's it was first published in 98, wasn't it, I think? Would that uh, be right? Yes, maybe 97. Yeah. 97, 98. Yeah. But it's, it's being reissued on Borough Press. So what is it like returning to an old book for you. Have you done anything to it? Have you changed it or edited it at all? No, when new editions of old books come out, I do not touch the text. Um, that's partly lack of appetite for doing so because that's the past, it's finished. And and there's this, I have a certain regard for the historical record and that's, that's the published book. Mm. And if I wrote it again, I'd probably do a few things a little differently, but I didn't. And I think that's that's a sound attitude. There are writers who do revise really when they come out, and I'm I'm astonished by that because I like you see it almost as a historical document, and it's a slice of Tracy at this time, and I'm a different person now, and I would write it differently. And why would I want to do that now? It's actually the thought of going back over old ground and changing. Oh, it, it fills me with a sense of nausea. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. <laughs> 
In the same way, um, whenever I've been offered the opportunity to write a screenplay for one of my novels, I've I always turned it down because by the time you're in a position to be asked that, the book is old. You're working on something else, mm-hmm. and the idea of just being dragged backwards like that uh, is is very unappealing. And you like the idea that the, that that text, those ideas, the way that that was written, was then that moment, and that's how it will be now. Yeah. If anyone picks it up in mm. 10, 20, 30 years, you know, it's, it was written in 97 and it remains there. And your books and your writing maybe change and progress or they go different ways, but that was what happened at the time. Yeah. I think you'd probably have musicians would say the same thing. They, don't, they aren't going to... Re- well, mind you, having said that, they have to sing, play the same songs over and over again in, in concert. So I suppose it, it shifts over time, mm. but they rarely go back and re-record uh, an original, do they? My husband does. Oh. does he? <laughs> he wouldn't. He wouldn't take apart a whole album, though, would he? That he no, he but th- that's particular to the jazz tradition. This um, re-recording standards and right, you know, yeah. right. constantly re reinventing and reinterpreting the same tunes. After all, it's a an improvisational form, and nothing ever comes out the same way twice. That so, makes sense, though, in jazz. you can that, That's understandable from yeah. the way you've explained it, yeah. But in writing, if you were to do the same thing, I mean, that, that just sounds horrible, yeah. <laughs> rewriting the same book over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. How was it rewriting... Shakespeare? Re- Shakespeare. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, know. I was trying to rephrase that what question. What hubris <laughs> uh, caused me to do that? Well, I was asked by Hogarth Press to take part in this thing called the Shakespeare Project, and they've asked various writers to choose a Shakespeare play and write a novel inspired by it. Mm. And Jeanette Winterson called her uh, retake of the, the Winter's Tale a cover version, which is quite a nice way of putting it. Mm. And um, I chose Othello, and I think originally I thought... The the first thing I decided was that I was not going to try to imitate Shakespeare's language in any way because it's impossible, um, and he we'd get I'd get made fun of, and it would I would never be able to do you know come up with the metaphors he comes up with and the puns and the references and the poetic language. So I thought, okay, it's just the story, and actually Shakespeare himself uh, took Othello from a um, a 16th century Italian tale. And he often stole other people's stories and retold them. And he also used the, uh, you know, a play is uh, is a is a blueprint for a production. And each production is going to be different. Mm. And a playwright accepts that and expects it. Um, and I think you could look at New Boy as it's just another production of Othello. It happens to be set at a different time, different place. And there are some things I've shifted around, but it's um, it's not so crazy to do that when you look at it that way. Mm. But what was odd about it, as I said earlier, about doing historical research and you know the research from the research, a lot of stuff, you know, ideas for for characters and plot comes out. With this, it was much more of an intellectual exercise. Somebody had given me the story and the characters, and I just had to kind of rejig it a little mm. bit. But it was more like, okay, how do I do this in my head? Uh, change, make Othello into a 1974 schoolyard, and. Um, and that worried me for a while because it felt like um, my books normally come from my gut rather than my head. And I had to find a way to make it more gut, more Tracy gut mm-hmm. in there. And I think that's one of the reasons, too, why I chose to set it when I did in 1974 when I was 11 
on a school playground not so unlike what I experienced, um, though slightly different. I, I grew up in Washington, D.C., and I went to I was in an integrated neighborhood and went to a school that was mostly black. So I was a white kid amongst mostly black kids. And in New Boy, it is a black boy who walks into an all-white playground. But there's lots of references to uh, the Partridge family, the Jackson 5, uh, Bell Bottoms, <laughs> Now Laters, Big Buddy Bubblegum, Salisbury Steak with that horrible sauce on it in the cafeteria, playing Double Dutch, playing Jacks, playing Kickball, all the stuff that we did as kids. And and that's where I felt like that made it into my kind of book. Yeah, absolutely. Always musical references. They, they're course. always going to anchor it to the, to the author a bit, aren't they? Yeah. And we could... You know, us three could wang on about music for another hour, you know, if we if we had the time. But we should probably get on with the main event of Book Off. How oh, is this the main event? Well, okay. this is where you have three minutes each to talk about, to passionately pitch a book that you think we should all read. And I'm re- it's quite interesting. You've both picked very contemporary novels. So, Lionel, tell us about your choice. You don't have to do the three minutes. Just tell us what you've chosen. Lawrence Osborne's Beautiful Animals. And Tracy, what have you come for? I have chosen Preparation for the Next Life by Atticus Lish, and it was published in 2014. So I have a coin here somewhere, <laughs> and someone has to call it, and we'll see who goes first or second, whoever. Go ahead, Lionel, we'll call Okay. It. Heads or tails? Heads. Heads it is. First or second for you? Well, maybe I'll get it over with. <laughs> 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 um, you don't have to use all your three minutes, but at the end of those three if minutes... If I know me, I will use all my three minutes and will have managed to say basically nothing. <laughs> well, we know, I'm sure that's not true. <laughs> but when you hear the bell, it's time to stop. So we'll keep quiet, and it's over to you, Lionel, to tell us about beautiful animals. Well, Lawrence Osborne is, has often been compared to Paul Bowles, so those of you who like The Sheltering Sky will probably like this book. It's about a couple of young women who are holidaying on a Greek island with their families and a refugee from the European refugee crisis washes up on a deserted beach and they decide to try to help. And it doesn't work out very well. (laughs) I will not tell you any more of the plot. But I would say this is a real page-turner. it had that quality that I'm always looking for in a book and and hardly ever find these days of I've started and I don't want to do anything else. And I just sat there and read this book. And when I had to stop, uh, I look forward to getting back to it. And that that's what I love in, in a good book. The, um, the writing is spectacular. It's full of good one-liners like um, Jimmy was being a raconteur that most terrible of things <laughs> and the dialogue is is great um you know the the savvier more worldly of the two women says you think there's unconditional love but there isn't the conditions are everything i love that line and um the whole book is shot through with this sense of dread so even before everything goes completely to hell You know it's going to. So he's a real master of, we know this won't end well. I'm also very keen on the way he captures culture clash uh, with um, the uh, more morally grounded locals and the decadent tourists. Um, So here's a housekeeper describing her employers. 
The Codringtons were long asleep, doled by their sleeping pills and booze. Their snores could be heard throughout the house. It was a disgusting sound, a sound commensurate with her bestial employers. That night they were in full roar, like huge, fattened, tropical frogs. <laughs> so um, I really encourage you to, uh, to read this book. It's a great way to go at the European uh, migration crisis, which is very difficult to write about straight on. It's so politically and emotionally charged. Uh, and and Osborne has very cannily gone at it as it kind of from the side with a slant, and he's very good about. I think he's a cynic. I think he's a terrible cynic, because he's very good about what makes people tick, and what lengths he will go to to protect their own interests. Very good. Was that oh, you finished man. anyway? You brought it in. Pretty much bang on time there. Very impressive. Well, you were threatening me with that bell. <laughs> well, you saw, me, you saw that, did you? Yeah. Like a cudgel. <laughs> um, well, that was a great pitch for um, Lawrence Osborne's Beautiful Animals. Tracy, it's over to you now for your three minutes. Tell us about Preparation for the Next Life by Atticus Lish. I chose this book because I was, I feel like I was changed by the end of reading it, that it opened a door into a new world that I knew nothing about, and I want books to do that for me. It's about a, a, an illegal Chinese immigrant um, in the States, a young woman named Zai Lu, who is from Western China. Uh, straight, uh, she's slightly out of sync with the Chinese community in the States, and she works illegally in Queens and New York um, and in the back of restaurants, washing dishes, clearing tables. And um, she meets a man who, uh, who's named Brad Skinner, who is an Iraqi war vet who has um, uh, PTSD, uh, and he is a post-traumatic stress syndrome. And he's got lots of mental health issues, and they're both people on the edge who are living just barely scraping by, and the kind of people you'd never get to know anything about who would never write a book like this. And um, I feel like every time I go into a restaurant now, if I go into the kitchen and peek in, I will see somebody washing dishes and I'll think, wow, I feel like I know a little bit more about your life now. And unexpectedly, they fall in love with each other and they fall in love over running and exercise. Um, the, the young Chinese woman is in the back of the restaurant out in the, out in the alley doing lunges, doing running up and down. She goes for these long runs and walks around the five boroughs of New York. There's an amazing tour de force towards the end of the book when she walks for 24 hours straight. And it's just, oh, and I'm going to read you a little bit of this unlikeliness of them, um, the two of them going for a walk when they're just getting to know each other. And it's beautifully, it just tells, has wonderful descriptions of New York and the bits of New York, the bits of a city where you're not in the countryside yet, you're not even in the nice suburbs, you're in the scrappy, horrible bits. One day when she wasn't working, Zule had Skinner meet her on Roosevelt Avenue. His grown-out hair rose up stiff and uncombed from his head, no longer military. It was a clear day after a rain and the trash was pulped on the street. They hiked out of Chinatown until they were far enough away to see the red-lacquered Chinese eaves and the fire escapes and then kept going. There was no plan. They just walked, walking down by the expressway and the auto repairs whose signs were in Chinese. The road took them by a cemetery, then a stretch of little houses with pitched roofs and falling down siding. 
perfect detail, the falling down siding, the trash pulped on the street. The air was bright and cool and warm, a deceptive day since they were still in winter. She thought she could smell the springtime in the street, in the air rising from the asphalt and from the soil and the broken bricks. So it's those things, those broken bricks. It's just those little details. And it's, of course, tragic. It can't work out. But it is the most glorious love affair and the most unlikely one. Wow. Oh, they're both pretty strong, I must say. <laughs> what do you think? Secretly, uh, you can read both of them. <laughs> of course yeah. I can. That's the yeah. beauty of it. Uh, basically, you can just talk to you guys and you can bring me brilliant recommendations and then I can pick one but take them both with me. Well, I have to both. say, I definitely want to read Lionel's. And there's a there's a wonderful nonfiction. We were talking about nonfiction before and there's a great nonfiction accompaniment to that book, which is called The Optician of Lampedusa, which I had by Emma Jane Kirby, which I had thought about choosing for this book mm-hmm. off. And mm-hmm. it's probably good that I didn't, but it's about an, an Italian optician. It's a true story of an Italian optician on uh, an island off Lampedusa's off of Sicily. Mm-hmm. And he and some friends are going on, are on the, a yacht just sailing around for fun, and they come across a boat that's tipped over, and it's all uh, refugees drowning. Mm-hmm. And they, they try to save as many as they can, and it's about the effect it has on him and his friends and the, the, the relationship they establish with these refugees who mm. they've helped to save. And it's it's absolutely heartbreaking. I kind of cried all the way through it. But it gives you a nonfiction uh, way into to the crisis, the mm. refugee crisis. So read them in conjunction. Yeah. I'd also strongly recommend Lawrence Osborne's previous book, The Forgiven, which has the same culture clash thing in it. It's in Morocco. Right. Okay. Well, I've got – I mean, I, I – I hate this, that I've got to pick one. And I've set myself up for it, really, so it's stupid, yep. isn't it? Um, you realize we're going to take this personally. I know and, that you and, will take this personally. And it's not personally. only going to reflect on the books, but we're going to decide that whoever wins, you like better. Oh. <laughs> this is, this is, I know this is true. Well, look, I will read both of them, I think, because they, they just sound brilliant. I love New York and I love literature about New York that makes cities a character and, and makes them beautiful or or makes them something that can really resonate. So... Based on those two brilliant pictures, I am going to take today the Atticus Lish, I think. I'm grievously insulted. <laughs> you know it? Just to I'm make you feel better, Lionel, I'm going to give you my copy. Really? Because <laughs> oh, I, I brought... know you'll love that book yeah. and you can start it on yeah. the plane. She's going off to New York in a couple of days. So oh, well, it's, this, it's a could fantastic be book. Well, it's, that's it's a big especially present. For I got something Yorker. out of this book. Yeah. <laughs> So we all win. You yes. get the glory, Tracy. And, yeah, but you uh, get and, the book. And Lionel book. gets the book. Yeah. <laughs> but thank you both for those suggestions. It's been an absolute pleasure. So thank you both very much for joining me. Thank you. bloomers tend to have more curiosity they tend to have more resilience their stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men what if everything we've been taught is just all wrong what's worth more than this fear right now and that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being listen to deeply personal 
insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 